from hemp X that we have uh, for the, the customers that, that smoke hemp. Um, the packaging is created by myself. Uh, my grandfather and my father is on all of our packaging, um, on our, our, our products. We have uh, teas that we make. Uh, we have three blends of tea. We have a hibiscus um, high energy uh, blend. We have a full body detox blend. And we also have a uh, immunity blend. Hey guys, it's Mandy with Global Hemp Association. I wanted to say thank you so much for joining. I'm excited about the opportunity to build a relationship and connect this supply chain. I mean, after all, that's why we started the association. Our association was built on the foundation of connecting supply chain, building relationships, and helping you grow your business. Anyone from farmers, manufacturers, and distributors, people that are passionate about the supply chain, and those creating products selling into biofuels, plastics, textiles, construction, and building materials. I want to welcome everybody, uh, especially as we get started. I actually have some really cool commercials that I should have played uh, beforehand that kind of show what we're doing at the Global Hemp Association uh, as an intro while everybody gets logged on. But while you do, or when you do get logged on, please drop in, say hello, let us know that you're here. Uh, if you like what you're hearing, go back to our YouTube channel, subscribe on the YouTube channel. Um, where you get all the content. We post new content every day at the same time. Um, so I'm excited to today introduce, do you go by Patrick or Rick? Either, or Rick? E either, either one is fine. Okay, well, Patrick, I'm really excited to have you on today and excited to introduce you to everybody. Um, so for those of you that are new to the show, every Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, we go live and interview somebody within the hemp and cannabis industry, specifically the industrial hemp industry, sharing education, um, dropping a little knowledge, but more importantly, connecting people. We were just talking because Dave, who is working with Patrick, um, connected us and the power of the network and power of being connected. And so with that being said, uh, Patrick, you want to give me a little background about yourself? How'd you get into this? What brought you into the hemp industry of all things? <laughs> and where are you located? Yes, uh, Mandy, first I want to say thank you for giving us the opportunity to um, uh, learn about our, our company and what we do. Yeah. My name is Patrick Brown. Some uh, Most of my friends call me Rick. I am from Henderson, North Carolina, in the Warren County uh, District of uh, Southeast Warren, uh, North Carolina. And I'm a traditional uh, row crop farmer, um, fourth generation. Uh, my father, his father, and my great-grandfather all farmed on the land that we currently still cultivate. Our farm is called Brown Family Farms, and we have been in production since the late 1800s, so over 100 years of row crop production. Uh, some of the traditional crops that we have been accustomed to growing, uh, I grew up in the tobacco fields in the 80s. Um, tobacco, soybean, uh, cotton, corn, um, sorghum uh, and vegetables. So those are the traditional crops that we have always grew up farming. And our last cultivation of traditional non uh, regeneration farming was tobacco. Okay. And we stopped farming that in 2017. So after 2017, myself, my mother and my father, we sat down and we wanted to look into some of the more regeneration crops that we could actually put back into the soil to release some of the carbon nutrients back into our ozone and create a beneficial process for not only the plants that we grow, but the environment. 
So the first plant that came into our mind was industrial hemp uh, because in 2014, the North Carolina government uh, decided to utilize the plant as a pilot program uh, for the state uh, in two phases. Uh, the first phase was to provide research to the government for economic development to the state. And the second phase was to establish a uh, market for, well, a crop for the intention to market for the local farmers or the farmers in the state. So we uh, provided both of those aspects of the program. We provide research as well as the intent to market, which is where we are today. We uh, cultivate about 170 acres of industrial hemp plants, uh, CBD, as well as textile production. And we also vertically integrated through processing to create our own product line, which I founded in 2018 called Hempfinity, which is licensed and trademarked through the United States Patent Office. Okay. Uh, and we also have a retail store as well to provide products and services to our local community. Okay, so I've got lots of things that you've said that I want to come back to. Um, what stuck in for you to focus on a carbon carbon footprint? And the what about hemp really drove that? Like, why, why hemp compared to any of these others? So uh, the main thing was uh, soil is a living, breathing system. So the soil is can provide as much as you put into it. Um, it's just like a relationship. Um, if you consistently take, 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 take away from that relationship, it's not really going to last a long time. And what we felt and what I felt in my father's generation of farming and his father's generation of farming, as we got away from the grass fed crops, we're consistently taking, 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 taking away from those crops. So um, industrial hemp production was one of the uh, carbon neutral plants that I've said, well, hey, we can really find a lot of research on how to grow this crop and we can come up with a system to make it productive for the, for the soil as well as beneficial to our crop production because we had gotten away from tobacco, which was our cash value crop. So we wanted to start there. And then we went to Moringa. Then we went to carbon neutral plants, uh, uh, comfrey as well. I'm sorry, I have a dog. I do too. So mine will probably, in fact, I was just thinking my kids are out grabbing stuff from their dads. They're probably going to come home and walk through the door and, hey, it's, this is life. It's like, welcome to my home. <laughs> right, right, right. So um, all, those, all those things that we felt that we would try that with, uh, with industrial hemp first um, and try to establish a long-term uh, farming aspect that we can not just grow for now, but grow for the future. And that's why we have so much emphasis on industrial hemp, fiber production and grain production, because we see that that is a longevity uh, process for the future. It can add to the cognation industry in the state of North Carolina, not to take away from it, but to add to um, adding more facets of ways that we can provide our garments from a head to toe, set into uh, customers uh, more so that provide more longevity care for the client. So we feel that we not only would benefit the customers, but we also benefit in the nature of our soil and how we make up those microcombs. Yeah. Okay. So tell me a little bit about the difference 
talk to me about how many acres, what are you growing industrial hemp for textiles compared to CBD? And can you give, I know that there's a lot of people that are listening that they understand the basics of the CBD or the hemp, but for those that don't understand the difference in the industrial or textile or how it's being grown differently for textile compared to a CBD crop, yes. um, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So uh, our first two years of growing for CBD, we were in the row crop production. We would grow anywhere between 18 to 20 acres each season. Um, and that season consists of a May grow to a September harvest. Now, so much that we have transitioned to the fiber production, we have switched those crops from row crop settings for CBD to indoor. So we are growing all of our CBD plants indoor so that they won't cross pollinate with the industrial fiber uh, plants, which that could be a possibility. So we're basically rotated those two facets of cannabis um, and we increased our acreage on the industrial fiber production because it's not necessarily based on tonnage, it's based on quality. We want to be able to provide a quality product to our clients. Um, so we're about eight to 10,000 square feet of indoor growing space for CBD and about 170 acres of industrial fiber. Okay. And talk to me about CBD is grown so many feet apart outside, right? In individual pots, horticulture style compared to what does your textile crop look like? And what are you so finding in your textile crops? Sure. The uh, textile crops is drilled into the ground at a 7.5 uh, inch spacing. Uh, so basically those plants, they almost sort of look like they're right on top of each other or just right beside each other. Um, they can grow up to 12 to 14 feet in height. Um, the diameter of the herd is something that uh, the manufacturing companies are, are very much interested in about where they can create hempcrete or uh, a condition uh, uh, alternative plywood that they can mix to make furniture uh, where the fiber textile company is more so looking at the small fibers at the earliest stage so they can create the best gum fiber uh, for their textile garment. Uh, so um, that's basically how the industrial uh, hemp fiber is, uh, is cultivated, whereas the CBD plant is about uh, uh, 14 to 24 inches apart from one another. Um, and we focus on just the mothers um, in our process. Um, we don't do G, uh, seed germination. We only do clone plants. So that way it give us a high percentage of uh, males to female ratio. And we grow that indoor uh, with some very sophisticated lighting fixtures uh, that we continue to grow our plants year round. Okay. In your indoor plants, obviously. Correct. Yeah. Uh, I saw something the other day, there was a post and I actually shared it on social media that was talking about lights being able to help in your outdoor production as well, you know, certain setups. And so it's always just interesting how things move along, but I, yeah, big production is going to be definitely where it's at. So talk to me about harvest time. You're okay. harvesting at full 120 days for textiles. What's, what does this look like? Yes, uh, anywhere between 80 to 120 days for the production time. Um, in our areas, we try to uh, look into the weather conditions and because we get hurricanes, we get tropical storms, all those things could factor in that are natural that we can't have any control over. 
but based on a none uh, weather issue uh, season, anywhere between 80 to 120 days. So what we would do is we would do a single sickle cut system where we will sickle the plant down at uh, 10, 10 inches from the root base of the plant. And we allow that plant to uh, rent at a natural setting uh, for anywhere between seven to 10 days. And once we have a certain moisture percentage that we're looking for, we'll flip that stalk on the other side and allow it to rent for an additional uh, four to five days. And after that process, if the moisture percentage is at the place where we need it to be, we'll go ahead and bail that stalk into a four by four or four by five bale. And we we'll store that bale off the ground um, so that the moisture can be at its uh, uh, correct state that we need it to be for the customer. And then the customer would take that bale uh, fiber, uh, hay, uh, sorry, fiber bale, and they would degum it into their facilities and then spin it to the highest quality for a garment that they're looking to produce. And um, being able to work hand in hand with clients to have these capabilities is so important because it allows us as the farmers to learn the process from start to finish. And then eventually uh, we could kind of try to tie into the process in ourselves and take some of that heavy weight off the, uh, off the client. That way we can actually be able to provide them with the finest quality products that they would need. And it also helps with the competitiveness of other industries. Okay, so talk to me about this carbon footprint. And then I want to go back to your background and your family's background in farming and your generations and what it means to you. But, uh, yeah, talk to me a little bit about the, the redding and what this looks like. Well, the redding uh, is, is, is a, as I stated before, is a natural, uh, natural harvesting or drying process. Um, without having to use any type of machinery equipment to do that. Uh, the redding would be uh, something that just dries on the ground at a natural state without, the, of course, the moisture levels that it needs to be, um, which also, of course, could possibly give back to the soil as well from what is left over from what the baler does when it bales it at a certain uh, bale that we're looking to bale at. Um, I always tie everything back to what I call carbonomics. Um, carbonomics uh, is a term that uh, hopefully will get people to think in an economic frame uh, of mind by using carbon as the currency. And if we can get farmers to think in terms of carbon or at least understand that carbon is even more important than nitrogen, then the only way to get carbon in the soil is having a growing plant. Uh, you got to have photosynthesis. And if you want more carbon, uh, if you want to have more carbon, you have to plant more cover crops. And that's where we tie back into what the regeneration process is. Um, mm -hmm. so when we harvest our plants, we will uh, drill a carbon cover back into the soil to add to what we already harvested. And that way, between the months of uh, November to April, we'll have more microcombs in the soil so that we can just go in and just till a no-till crop for the following year. So that is our regenerative process for what we can utilize with our land so that we can do multiple year harvest possibly um, when it comes to the future, future years. 
Awesome. 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 Okay. There's lots of comments. I want to add, put, put a couple up here. Um, someone was wondering, have you looked at fiber quality pre or post seeding? We have. We, we have read that this is our first year growing the fiber uh, cannabis plants. Um, we've looked at all of various types of processes that we can do in the future years. Um, I really am believing in this crop, believing in this process to be the next step for our regeneration on our farm. Um, myself as the fourth generation farm on our land that has been in production for over 100 years, I'm the first one that's actually practicing these processes. So we've actually been lucky to have been in a teal uh, farming uh, business for so many years. And it hasn't really affected us that much, but it has affected the ozone layer and the climate that we have to exist uh, under. So uh, my step as my fourth generation farmer is to also teach the fifth generation this process so that I'll be able to pass on the knowledge to my kids so they can continue to do this process and help give back to the earth. Yes. Good. I'm glad that you're seeing success. These are the success stories we need to highlight. So I'm excited about this. Um, I'll, I'll highlight a couple of others here. Somebody says, Todd says, North Carolina medical weed is right around the corner. <laughs> um, are you working? Tell me a little bit. Are you on the medical side? You are on the CBD side. Yes. What's your yes, I have been a part of the Virginia coalitions for um minority farmers in cannabis space uh, during the phase of when they legalize their processes um, is still held in a different standard in the state of North Carolina. However, North Carolina is a agriculture producing state, $95.6 billion uh, industry in the state of North Carolina. The problem is in North Carolina is convincing the corporations that do business in, in North Carolina to not take away acres for their crops and adding to acres of cannabis production. So we have to see and understand the legislators' rights of knowing, you know, how that industry is going to affect another. I'm all for medical marijuana coming to North Carolina, and we would be right in line to be able to grow it if it's legalized. However, it's up to the state legislators to allow us to see what type of inclusivity that would allow minority farmers to be in that space. Hmm. Uh, I don't know a lot, obviously, about this um, opportunity around minority and the shift that we've seen. But I've seen a big focus on this minority farming. How is that? How has that affected you? What you know? What have you really seen being being somebody that experiences it firsthand? Yes. Uh, so another step of uh, the way that we farmed during my generation and more so when my father and his father had to farm, they had to deal with the USDA and some of the discriminatory practices that were placed. I pledged the value that when as I'm farming that I would never have to deal with that processes because everything that we do, we don't rely on the government to help us farm. We create certain avenues and ways that we create our own funding to be able to utilize our farm in the correct way that we don't have to borrow against it. That's my battle of how I'm able to handle that aspect. However, we've now seen in the last two to three administrations where minority inclusion is something that's really on the conversation table. And what we're trying to do is uh, advocate 
two farms to be in existence and and allow the air property issues of the minority fam families to be able to farm again. My goal is to be an example that you can utilize your air property in production for your own family and that way create a system that you can continuously farm for generations to generations. We have to be able to be willing to farm again. I think that's one of the most inconsistencies of minority farmers. We don't want to put ourselves in a position to do the work. Yeah. What I'm trying to do is be an advocate for that, teach, provide workshops, to uh, provide ways to understand the business aspect of farming. It's not also just putting plants in the ground, whatever you may grow, but you have to create some type of market to be able to sell your product. As a minority farmer or, or a farmer of any uh, demographic, you can't plant what you can't sell. <laughs> In my particular case is not only can we not plant what we can't sell, but we shouldn't be planting anything that's not going to give back to the soil for what we plant in. And that's the key for that. Um, but like I said, I am an advocate for uh, some of the things that the government is talking about to help air property farmers uh, or help traditional farms to get back into existence again. And anything that I can do to try to continue to be an advocate for all farmers and not just my demographic of farming, I'm for everyone. Okay, so I say for, I've said for a while that I feel like hemp is making farming, farming sexy again. And I don't think it's just one demographic, it's across all demographics. Kids are not wanting to grow up and watch their parents work as hard as they have for as little as they've been able to, and, it's, and especially with as little support, right? Um, so I agree with you. What is the message you think that they need to hear or that people need to hear um, about the opportunity around hemp and how hemp brings that sexy feeling back, right? It's bringing sexy back. <laughs> It, it is. It, it's, it's more to uh, to the aspect of being something that's a niche for the moment, but it's something that's been here since World War II in the United States. Um, so education, I think, is the main thing. Uh, when understanding how to cultivate this crop and all the different things that it can create, it's one of the only plants that under God's greatest son that he created that can be utilized for so many things. And it can also help with uh, people that are suffering from uh, opioid addiction, veterans that are suffering from PTSD. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it takes the curve off the pharmaceutical industry to give us a holistic alternative. All of that thing, all of those things tie back into education. And I believe that once we have the amount of education needed, then people will be more interested in growing and not just being a a plant that has some type of uh, uh, bad intention because it doesn't, you know, it's just one facet of the plant that has a negative connotation, but they, they omit the millions of other beneficial opportunities that are there for the plant. It's, it's almost too much sometimes when you talk about it, it's like you're, it's easy to say the plant does, all those things you listed, right? And as soon as you do, it's almost like those people you're trying to speak to, their eyes glaze over because they only want to hear about one or only one. It could only be good enough to only be good for you know one vertical instead of all these others. And so uh, with that being said, talk to me about economic development, right? This is a piece that 
know, when we try to bridge the gap in those that are passionate about it and have been working with the plant for the last hundred years to now try to make it or bring it back into mainstream, what does the economic development opportunity look like? Yes, I am so passionate about that facet of farming, economic development, especially in my county, which is about 31,000 citizens. Uh, we were a, a thriving county in the 70s and 80s, but, but even before then in agriculture, it was one of the, uh, the, the greatest growing counties in the state of North Carolina uh, for tobacco production and other commodity crops. For my town, um, the manufacturing industry was big during the 60s and 70s, and it kind of died away as we got into the 90s and early 2000s. But what we're trying to focus on more in my county is creating jobs, job creation. And I and I believe that uh, some of the traditional farms that are utilizing more of the labor, uh, minority labor or H-2A programs for Hispanic workers um, is, is taken away from some of the other industries such as industrial hemp that could be farmed to add more of a labor background to the community. So we can create more jobs with having more uh, commodity processes. For example, we opened a retail store where we added jobs to our county. We added a farm CSA program that provides organic vegetables to the community we added more jobs to that particular facet. So farming, just like any other industry, can create jobs. But the thing about the cannabis plant or industrial hemp plant is that because it can make so many different things, that's just as many jobs that can be created. So I feel that we can add more economic development through this plant than some of the other traditional uh, jobs that are here in agriculture. Absolutely. I think especially when we talk about the products that it can be made into, right? If we even step away just from the farm or the processing piece, but now we take that raw material and it can be made into said 20,000 products, right? Think about each of those facilities and the number of jobs that will be needed to support those products. It's just, yes. it's exciting. Um, yes. There was a great question and I want to say hello, everybody. Um, I do, I do see all of you. Hello, hello. Ash, I see you. Uh, Kathy, hello. I'm glad. Thank you very much for joining. I'm sitting obviously awkward on my computer today because I'm on my phone, so I have to kind of look away to see my chat, but I do see them coming in. Um, how many businesses do you own and operate? Somebody just asked. So we have a retail store. Uh, we have a farm, of course, and we have a vertical integration uh, business online, and we have an agro-tourism business as well. So cool. Okay, tell me what's what's agrotourism. Talk to me about that. Well, uh, so with our agrotourism, uh, what what makes mine so unique is my great grand my great uh, grandfather Byron Brown. He originated uh, in 1843 from the Oakley Grove Plantation, which was a 7,000 acre plantation, and they were one of the largest uh, commodity farms in northern North Carolina at the time during 18, I'm sorry, 1792 and 1865. Uh, their production on that plantation was so large that the railroad track was put on the farm to export uh, goods and services to the North. And my father was born there in 1849. 
his parents were Jacob Falcon Brown and Lucinda uh, Fane. And that was my grandmother and my great great grandfather. Uh, at the end of the Civil War in 1865, my great grandfather left the plantation and came over to where we have today as our farm. Um, and he was able to develop hit that land from 100 acres to over 2,000 acres at his death in 1931. Uh, in February of 2021, I purchased that plantation. And I turned that plantation into an agro-tourism division of our current farm. And what we allow, what we have are tours there right now, but in the future we will be uh, reconstructing that reconstructing that property into a barnyard and bed and breakfast. Barnyard okay. wedding venue and bed and breakfast. Okay. Well, I want to come visit. Are you sure. gonna be at the are you gonna be at the uh, Hemp Expo, the Southeast uh, Hemp Expo in Raleigh? I don't know if I'm going to be there yet. We do have representatives from some of the uh, companies that we work with that okay. will be there. Um, uh, we're just trying to finalize that now. Well, if you are, I would love to see you. We'll have to connect because I will be up and I'm actually going to be staying a week extra. So maybe we'll have to come up and visit. Sure. Yes. 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 Love to, yes. Love to okay. So we have a great question that just came in from Edward. Um, he's wondering, um, are you seeing fair prices in the textile hemp? Are you having issues finding processors and do you see fair prices or where do you see prices going? Well, I feel that the textile industry, when it comes to final production has always been fairly high. Um, and you had a great, uh, a great person there last week that was talking about that and how that we wanted to see the market uh, change in prices. Uh, but the problem is, is the quantity is the quality over quantity uh, aspect or the supply and demand aspect. So when you have low supply, you're going to have a high demand, which is a higher price that's driving is micro and microeconomics. Um, but right now I feel like just as in any other industry that has a high value potential, those prices are going to inflate. And as more farmers are able to uh, create a higher supply, then we'll see those prices come come down uh, fairly uh, lower on the end product again. However, for the farmer, we're still, industries are still trying to understand the productivity of what is being produced. And in order to determine the value of what's being produced and how well it's being produced, the farmer, of course, is not going to fairly get the fair share because right now we don't know what the fair share is. Um, it's very important that farmers with the education level of the plant like I have are able to drive and determine their price. It's just like creating your own value. Um, as much work as we put into other crops, we have to put 10 times more work into a crop like this. Uh, we grow everything organically. No harmful pesticides or fungicides are being put into these crops because we don't know what part of the production of this crop can end up in someone's bloodstream. So we want to make sure that we provide the highest quality product to those companies so they can create things that we didn't even know could be created at the time. Uh, that's the way I look at it. Um, and also, yeah, so we just have to be very mindful and very careful. So the labor inclusive uh, inclusivity of what we put into the crop, we feel like we should be able to determine our own labor price for what we put into it. Um, yeah, 
I absolutely agree. And I know that there's a big call from the consumers market, right? The consumers want to see uh, not just the supply chain and that it's ethically sourced, but also that it's um, not that it's organic, right? Or that it's not chemically treated. And uh, I think that that's a huge shift, paradigm shift. We're definitely seeing for the first time that the consumers are willing to pay or vote with their dollar, right? Absolutely. And and our uh, farming process is being audited each and every year. Like all those things come out the pocket of the farmer Um, and the time spent as well as the time harvesting and planting. So it's very, it's, once we get commercial organizations to understand the amount of work that's put into these crops, I believe that they will understand the value of us and understand that just as important as uh, carbon neutral plants for industrial hemp or cannabis or any other plant, food is just as important. And actually, to me, food is more important. And um, that's why we plant a lot of food per year. <laughs> well, and it's it's always interesting to me. Um Two things. I want to wrap my head around volume and putting the need to the opportunity, right? To the small volume that you're producing compared to where we will be as a globe or even in, in North America. Mm-hmm. And then also, um, just kidding, that question, because the other one slipped my mind now. <laughs> it happens. It'll come back. It'll come back. Yeah. Yeah, I would say um, volume. Like, where where are we for volume? Like, what what do we need? Um, you know, what are we looking at for the amount of acreage? And maybe maybe even speaking to your area, you know, what's what's being what is the demand compared to what's actually being provided? So, for the manufacturing companies that are in our state, which is not that many, um, I I believe that our state should be able to handle anywhere between uh, fifteen hundred to two thousand acres uh, of industrial hemp fiber, and even more for grain. Um, the Midwest right now is struggling with feeding their cattle. Um, some of the crops that South Dakota, North Dakota that we've been following, and some of the droughts that they're having, they really are looking to. M- uh, multiple alternatives to try to figure out how they're going to feed their their animals this winter, and um, that's something that a, a side of the United States should should be able to provide in those situations. Uh, we shouldn't have to just allow the Midwest farmers to produce as much um, because if that's the case, we're going to have the 1936 Dust Bowl all over again if we aren't careful. Um, and we all seen the photos and the videos from that. It was just awful during the Roosevelt administration. Um, so we have to be able to at least look into the demand of what can benefit other areas of the United States and even uh, export into other countries. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, I was just on a call yesterday about this exact problem um, relating how how does hemp influence the food, you know, the uh, supply chain for the beef and poultry industries. And I'll tell you what, their cost to feed their their herd, I yes. guess, is right. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's astronomical right now due to drought. And so why are we not allowing them to feed? And I was speaking to another farmer that said it's amazing because the cattle will break down the fence to eat it. It's not, It's not. they're not afraid of it at all. Not at all, not at all. And um, other animals also. I mean, uh, animal 
Animals yeah. are very smart. They're not going to eat something that they feel that's not good for them. Um, and uh, rabbits, we've had rabbits seeing, rabbits eat it, deers, um, all types of animals that are just trying to understand it because they is not common in my area. Um, yeah. However, I know for a fact, uh, if we can create some type of silage for cattle, it'll be very much of an alternative uh, for the hay production or um, corn that they feed uh, in the Midwest. Yeah, well, it's got to be. That's definitely. Um, so what I was saying earlier is this where we've missed the shot on food, right, and food production. Can you talk to me a little bit? Is is North Carolina or what do you see as far as, as, far as the grain and the like hemp hearts? And, you know, you see a lot of production there or is it mostly in the textile space? Right now, it's mostly textile space because the FDA still has so much control over the industry uh, right now. And the regulatory commissions of the state of North Carolina through the animal feed also as well. So um, I would say the textile industry would probably lead the way coming out of my state of North Carolina. Um. Alexander just said some said something great on here. Ohio just allowed extra clones for pig fodder. Mm, interesting. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, wow. Green manure and I can't read these because it's on my screen. I have to get Green really close. And chop uh, is silage, please. Yes, that's what I was mentioning about the um, the alternative for corn silage. He's absolutely yeah. right. Neil, thank you very much for chiming in. It's good to see you. Kathy, it's great to see you on as well. Um, okay, so tell me a little bit where you're headed. What do you see as far as opportunity coming up for you guys in the next few years? Oh, uh, so the opportunity that I see is, of course, um, more regenerative practices, uh, more food plots, uh, more off-season uh, cover crops, um, and larger plots of industrial hemp. Um, I see that my state could possibly uh, legalize uh, cannabis to the point where we can offer uh, medical card induced crops for pharmaceutical companies or dispensaries, local dispensaries. I would love to be able to be a supplier for that if North Carolina can try to create some sort of uh, social equity groups for minority farmers in this process so that the pharmaceutical industry doesn't come in and just choke hold the opportunity like they have in uh, other states. Um, yeah. So our um, our experience of growing uh, the plant probably is not just going to be the only uh, end all be all for us to be able to be included. But the fact that we're able to get our GMCP certification to be certified organic um, through everything that we grow. Right now, we're just um, uh, Gap Harmonized Plus Organic for our vegetables, but we uh, grow all of our plants as if we are USDA certified. Uh, so that is something that we look to um, accomplish throughout the next two to three years is being a full USDA certified farm. Um, of course, our agro-tourism, we would like to uh, scale that up so that we can offer not only just tours of our facilities, bed and breakfast, or uh, uh, wedding barnyard wedding ventures, but to also add uh, agro-tourism for children, where we can uh, emphasize pumpkin patch tours 
Instead of a corn maze, we can possibly do a hemp maze. Um, we also would look into some of the uh, outdoor activity fishing tournaments. We have a lot of live water uh, surface um, plots on our farm where we can offer fishing tournaments. Um, we want to also do uh, concerts on our farm. Okay, well, I'm going to put this out there. We're going to do an event on your farm. <laughs> we'll just do a big event. We're all Global Association. Well, yes, we need we need some artists to come out, and we'll just do do an awesome barbecue before yes. all of it yes. starts. <laughs> yes, and, and provide some uh, <laughs> workshops, regeneration workshops yeah. for local farmers and um, tour and a uh, and 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 guests to be able to learn about ways that cover crops can be implemented and how to increase high carbon uh, uh, plant production. So that's just some of the things, I have so many ideas in my head that I wanna do to create a all-inclusive farm that has the opportunity to do so much and that people can come to from all over the world. Okay, so uh, someone just made a comment that is, <clears throat> I can't see, unfortunately, who it is. It says LinkedIn user North Carolina just announced that the cancellation of their state hemp program, the USD, is taking over North Carolina hemp. How yeah. does that affect? What does that change for you? Or what? where does that? Yeah. What do you think that does for the industry? In North we, Carolina? we anticipated that to happen um, last year. They provided an extension in 2020. Um, Virginia followed suit with the same thing last year. Only thing that it does is a, it, it, it forces us to submit a federal growers license instead of a state growers license. Um, the fees may change. However, all that means is that North Carolina is about to go full-fledged medicinal. That's exactly what basically what that means. Also, it also helps to understand that the state has reached the full research potential of what the economic value of growing cannabis is. Um, so that basically lets us know that they have determined the taxation for whatever that may be. They have determined that what alternative crops can be already added to the uh, uh, the supported agriculture crops that's already being uh, grown in the state, which is what we call the $95.6 billion agriculture industry for the state of North Carolina that's already in existence. That just lets us know that everything is in line to go full-fledged medicinal. Yes. Yeah. Moving right along. Moving right Definitely. along. And there's a lot of support coming in from the USDA, right? They're putting together programs. There's definitely, you know, money that's available for public-private partnership and scaling. And it's awesome. Um, and shout out, obviously, for exciting about the hemp maze and the workshop. I think that's great. Obviously, so, so many of us, we can preach it and talk about it, and it just isn't real until you touch it, you see it, and you feel it. And so I think that that's a massive impact at bridging this gap. Exactly. That's awesome. Um, I see David's listening. Hello. I'm glad to see you joining us, by the way. It's awesome. Hey, David. Um, so, so talk to me about how do we, how do we or what do you need from the from us or from an association or group or others to really help move this forward? What do you think that is needed on a on a big scale as well as within your community? Well, I, I would say that you all are already doing so much when it comes to the education and the um, acknowledgement of this plant not going anywhere is here to stay. Um, we very much appreciate that. I would say that 
if anything, it we could add to the value of everybody being included in production of, of industrial hemp. And that includes the commercial aspect of getting more corporations on the horn to realize that, hey, polyester, cotton, that's not the only way that you can create a valuable product and it be profitable for your company and corporation, but to also consider adding industrial hemp because the United States needs to lead the way again in the industry instead of other other countries. Um, if we go to Austria, we go to Europe, um, we go to Asia, we've seen that they utilize this plant for centuries while we're just trying to continue to catch up. Um, this is an industry that we can be the uh, head of the of the curve in um, and to also add to the exportation of our products to other countries and, uh, and allowing them to understand that we can grow just as well as they can and we can also uh, provide seed to those countries and not so much source seeds from overseas to the United States. So I guess um, I don't know if anything could be added to the great job that you already are with your organization and you yourself are already doing. So that's kind of a hard question to kind of, you know, to kind of say or answer. I'm sorry. Well, there's I think there's so much. Right. When we talk about education, like farmers specifically. You know, I think there's a big piece of education that happens different or that, you know, we really need to focus on meeting our farmers where they're at and how many of you guys get on calls on a regular basis versus you're out in the farm working, right? Or you're meeting with a handshake and within your community. And so I do think that there's a piece of education that we can, we're really going to strive to, you know, meet our farmers where they are so that they can take a piece of this. And how do we give them a bigger piece of that supply chain and the resource? I feel like this is a Hemp's a resource for them. It's not just another crop. It's a resource to to help support all of the other things that they're doing. And so, absolutely. absolutely. You know, where do we meet them at that? Okay, so scalability. Where do you think the market is with scalability, and where do you what do you think we need, even in the textile space, to really compete on a global scale? Facilities, infrastructure. I think that is the most valuable, important aspect of the end product. Where are we going to take this product that a farmer can grow tons of it and be able to get it to the point where it can be decorcated or degummed and processed to the finest thread? Uh, the problem is we don't have enough investors investing into the infrastructure and development of the end product. Um, I would say corporations are looking to see where other corporations are doing before they hit the button and say, okay, we got to hurry up and get this done because we're going to be behind the eight ball. Um, I think that a risk, the risk is going to be greater than the reward and corporations just got to be able to invest that, but not only just invest into the infrastructure of the buildings, but also invest into the farmers that have to uh, use so much sweat equity in order to get that product created. Yes. Okay. So when we talk about scalability, this is something that comes up often. And I think that it's something you consider probably quite a bit, right? Is like, we're passionate about rural America. We're passionate about our small farms and providing the opportunity. But, you know, in order to scale, we often hear we need the large processing to drive down the price because it drives volume and so forth. How do we bridge that? 
how, you know, what does that, what does that look like to be able to support rural growth and rural opportunity and give them an opportunity to compete on a competitive price to some of these big products? What does, what does that look like? Well, I would say that opportunity needs to be there in order to create the jobs in order to create the products. Um, it has to be some sort of opportunity there. Um, you can't stop a farmer from growing 10,000 pounds of corn and say, hey, we need you to grow industrial hemp because we believe that by growing this industrial hemp fiber is going to offset or add to the production profit of what you're going to make off that corn. Um, you have to have opportunities. Um, and in order for rural communities to have opportunities, they got to believe in the backing of what you believe that this product can do. We Certain rural communities may not have education on what is going to be done, because if that was the case, they'd probably be doing it themselves. And the only way they can do it themselves is having the financial backing of an organization without barring against the land to do it. And that's the thing, because uh, most rural community farms are farms that have been in families for over hundreds of years. And some have been utilized incorrectly and some have been financed incorrectly. So trust is big in rural communities. Uh, Health is big in rural communities. We struggle with putting the proper nutrients and foods into our systems for the longevities of our lives because we don't have the education that is needed to know what we're putting into the soil to create the product. So education, trust, financial backing, and commitment would be my answer to your questions. I agree with you. Um, Dave said something great too. Scalability comes with larger LOI contracts, right? And those come with more processing facilities and proof of concepts and being able to, and and I also agree with what you said that, you know, there's a lot of companies that are, dipping their toe in the water and nobody has really gone, gone in to say, Hey, I shouldn't say nobody. There are some like Lego announced. There's some yeah. tire companies that I saw made some announcements and um, yeah. obviously clothing, different, various different clothing companies. But yeah, I think that it's definitely a uh, proof of concept and everybody's trying to make sure that this isn't a bust or um, I've heard it compared, you know, in the textile space as a, you know, I don't know if anxiety, but a, they're a little bit apprehensive because they don't, they're don't. they concerned it's something similar to bamboo, where bamboo has a great idea, but the way it's processed is really not very sustainable. Um, so, yeah. yeah, but yeah. concept, we know better, right? <laughs> yes, and I feel, that, I feel that companies like that that say those things just have not taken the time to actually put enough trials into the game to figure it out. Um, they don't have the time because the time that they utilize on focusing on that one way of doing things, they could be profiting on so many others. Someone has to take that risk. Some company has to find the need to want to change the industry. It's just like us farmers. We got to believe that carbon is more important than nitrogen. We put down more and more nitrogen and less uh, photosynthesis process where we planted more plants to create the carbon to make that plant successful for the following year, you got to be able to take the time and invest in the risks in order to get the reward. Corporations need to learn the same thing. I love what you just said, that we've got to understand that carbon is more important than nitrogen. Yes. Yes. I, I, I love it. 
Well, guys, I want to thank everybody for joining. Uh, I really enjoyed our conversation. I'd love to have you back on again. If you wouldn't mind, tell me a little bit as we close up about some of the products that you have on your product line. I see some on your shelf. I don't know if you'd be open to share a little bit about about some of them. And then how do people reach out to you? How do people, if they want to order products or if they want to connect or have questions? um, Thank you so much uh, for giving us the opportunity to talk about our uh, CBD business. So hempfinityus.com is our website. Uh, people can log onto our website and learn about our farm as well as shop for products that we create on the farm, that we grow on the farm um, as from hemp ants that we have uh, for the, the customers that, that smoke hemp. Um, the packaging is created by myself. Uh, my grandfather and my father is on all of our packaging. Um, on our, our, our products, we have uh, teas that we make. Uh, we have three blends of tea. We have a hibiscus um, high energy uh, blend. We have a full body deto- detox blend. And we also have a uh, immunity blend. We have CBD oils, uh, 500 to 1500 milligrams of CBD oil full spectrum. Um, we have uh lotions we have travel lotions that we make as well we have salve creams uh salve we have lemon eucalyptus lavender we have uh cbd capsules that we create on our farm um we have uh cbd gummies that we have as well we also have delta eight products also um, we, you, our customers can go online and purchase there, or if they're in North Carolina, they can stop by our retail space, which is on South Main Street in Warrington, North Carolina. Um, anyone that has questions that would like to talk to me directly can submit an email to info at connectgroupllc.com.